לשידור ישיר ממחנה רמה בברקשיירס. My good friends, Rabbi Barry Chesler, Solomon Schechter, Day School, Long Island, Rabbi Jeremy Kalmanovsky at the Anshay Chesler in New York City. It's great to see you guys. We have such an amazing Parsha. This is a Parsha that we will not do justice to. There's so much material in this Parsha. We got to get right into it. First of all, the synopsis of the beginning, the, some, some details, small details re- relating to the Mishkan, which we won't go into, the half shekel, the... The, the, the wash stand, the wash basin, the Shemen HaMishcha, the anointing oil and the incense, the Tzalel, but we'll start with Shabbat. The passage that we recognize, that we recite at Kiddush, V'shamru v'nei Yisrael at Shabbat, that passage is in our Parsha, the people of Israel shall keep Shabbat, la'asot et ha-Shabbat le'dorotam b'rit olam, Barry, tell us about this passage and what this means. So the passage comes as a reminder to us that Shabbat is indispensable to being Jewish, to religious Jewish identity, that no matter how we observe, we have to make Shabbat a different day than the rest of the week. We don't have to observe Shabbat according to the Shulchan Aruch, although that works for some people, but all religious Jews have to have some sense that Shabbat is different from the other six days. Shabbat is, is an anchor. Jeremy, Shabbat. I'm in favor of it. Yes, it's good. It is, I, I totally agree with Barry. It, it, it is the most essential part of Jewish ritual of all the mitzvot, ben adam l'makom. And, and Shabbat has a ben adam l'chaviro, the commandments both between humanity and God and, and in the social human community. Shabbat has an element of that as well. But of the, of the conventionally ritual elements in Judaism, Shabbat is by far and away the most important. Heschel has this observation in God in Search of Man that, that Shabbat is an untranslatable word. In every other language, it just became Sabbath or Sabbaton or something like that because it is so uh, essential to Judaism. I, I would make the uh, observation about our passage of Vishamru, which I which I, is in our Parsha, which is, of course, liturgically part of our lives. Uh, the, there are two things about it that I just I find so moving. One is one is that it says that you have to la'asot et yom ha-Shabbat. You have to make the Shabbat day. You have to do the Sabbath day. And I think that its, it's richness um, is commensurate with the amount of effort that you put into it. You have, to, uh, you have to cook, you have to clean, you have to dress up, and you have to celebrate. And those things will give you that sense of the meaning of this day. At the same time, I, I want uh, to give a little fanciful, not, not grammatical explanation, but a, uh, a bit of a, uh, a poetic riff on the words, Ot hi le'olam. Shabbat is a pointer towards eternity. Like time flows, 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 day after day after day after day. You go to work, you, you accomplish, you achieve, blah, blah, blah. But there, beneath all that river of time, there is some eternal dimension. And when we as the Jewish people stop and make Shabbat, 
we call our attention to. We call our own attention to the eternal dimension of life. And that's part of my Shabbat experience. And, and I, I recommend for you guys too. We talk so much, and Elliot, you were, you were leading in this direction before. We talk so much about being Shomer Shabbat. You got to keep, 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 keep Shabbat. And you got to avoid the rules. And Barry said, you know, like uh, keeping all the rules according to the Shulchan Aruch or, or at least Shmirat Shabbat Gehel Chatat for crying out loud. You, you keeping all those rules is a kind of art. But I want to say to our readers, I say, uh, listeners, I say in my shul, um, don't forget to be Zocher Shabbat as well as Shomer Shabbat. Yeah. Making Kiddush, lighting candles, being with your family, um, studying some Torah, those active things you do are really, really, really spiritually significant. And even if, I don't think you should make toast on Shabbat, but even if you do make toast on Shabbat, um, you should try to do those other things that make the day special as well. The single most transformative experience of Judaism is Shabbat. And, you know, the three of us... Uh, with our with the roots of the show at Machana Ramah in the Berkshires, you know, we're recalling the so many beautiful moments of Shabbat. And and it's not an accident that when kids or staff, you know, reflect on Ramah, the first thing that they say that that is the most important or the most beautiful aspect of of the experience is Shabbat. And that's because of the totality of that experience and 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 how joyful and how full it is. Barry. I just want to add one more point that when we Keep Shabbat, however we keep it, we're completing our identification with God. It's not enough to be to create the first six days as God created the world in six days. We also have to rest on the seventh day like God rested on the seventh day. Okay, so let's move on in the Parsha. The, the tablets are finished. Vayiten el Moshe, God gives the tablets to Moses. Shnei luchot ha'idut, luchot evan, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone. Ketuvim bets by Elohim. And now we uh, written with the finger of God, and everything changes here. Everything turns. The people see that Moses is holding back, and Moses is staying up there. And and you you know, I mean, you know what's coming here, Jeremy. What's coming here? <laughs> Disaster. Okay, disaster. Moses. Moses is staying up at the at the mountain. By the way, you know, um, as as some of the Hasidic commentators, you know, Lech read Moses. You have to go back down to the people. There's always a Levi Yitzchak of says this. There's a kind of absorption in the divine. Moses up in the mountain, like this is where I belong. I'm up here with God. Yeah. Um, and 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 that's not a Jewishly adequate spiritual path, right? You can't just go up on the mountaintop. You have to be in human society. So Moses is up there. He's he's promised to come back 40 days. Uh, he's delaying his his descent, maybe because he's so happy to be up there in the divine realm. And the people um we we can and commentators have uh shaded this a little were the people understandably anxious were the people just faithless and stupid um, but whatever happened they were very very anxious and it was inadequate they couldn't bear the absence of their leader and they they say to Aaron you have to uh, you have to uh, make us some symbol you have to make us a god who will go before us now what exactly are they trying to replace and they make Aaron makes of course a golden calf he 
tells them to give all his earrings and and he actually asks asks the men for their wives' jewelry and they break off the the jewelry in their own ears and gives rise to a tradition that the women refused. Women said, no, 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 this is stupid. Guys, please stop. So the men gave their own earrings, not their wives' jewelry. Um, Aaron gets all the gold. He makes the calf and, and says, this is the God who brought you out of Egypt. What are they trying to replace? Is the symbol to replace Moses? Is the symbol itself a false God? Is the symbol some visual representation of, of Hashem, like the true God, but who is invisible and they can't bear that level of abstraction. They need a hunk of metal that's shiny that you can look at and say, yes, this is it. Very so their representation of God had been Moshe. And then Tehillim is described as Zish Elohim, um, which I believe uh, Rabbi Steve Garfinkel once suggested was the man God, that there is even in the Bible a kind of dissonance where sometimes we have this combined man and God, which later, of course, becomes perhaps more famous in Christianity, which will be a subject of another show, perhaps a few thousand years from now. Um, but they'll still be reading the Parsha. They will. <laughs> Probably we'll still be talking about it. <laughs> but I think the, the point is that they need something. Moses has disappeared. So their access to God is, has become temporary and now removed. And they need something permanent. So they, Go ahead. So they create the golden calf so they can say, this is who led us out of Egypt. Because the real person who led us out of Egypt is no more. And I think that we have to think a little bit, if we were in their shoes, I don't think we'd be thinking Moses is coming back. It's not, this is not a holding action where the people need their blankie till they fall asleep and get a good nap. They are fearful that their whole world has become undone. Well, that's precisely what I was going to ask, that the, if we could identify with all of the characters here, there, the, and using the people as one character, there's the people, there's Aaron, there's Moses, and there's God. So I, I think we, we cannot under, un, overstate the, the level of trauma here that the people have for the absence of their leader. Look, look what they've experienced up until now. They've experienced the splitting of the Red Sea. They can remember, you know, back a couple of months before with the, the plagues in Egypt, the, the total disruption, the upheaval the miracles, the, all of that, and Mount Sinai to boot. And now all of that seems to have vanished because the person of Moses is, is taking his time. Well, Shej Moshe, you know, you were saying that before, you know, he, he's late. I, I wonder sometimes about the idea that, that you said, Jeremy, you know, he, he enjoys it up there. But, uh, you know, is there a little bit of ambivalence in Moses? It, do I want to go back to these people? Do I want to stay up here? Boshesh, there, there's, a, there's a mixture of emotions in, in staying up there. And then the people, there's this, this deep sense of trauma. And then there's Aaron, who, can you, which one do you want to so, take? Let's, I, I want to add something here, because your comment really begs the question, why does Moses have to be on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights? Yes, good question. Who's, who does that serve? 
So if we follow along Jeremy's comment, that would seem to increase Moses's desire to be on the mountain. I've already been here for 40 days. It's great up here. Why should I leave? Right. Why should I, right? If I had to come for this long, why not stay another day? I've always thought about 40 days as, as the unit of transformation. You know, we have some 40 day units in the, in the year, the, from Rosh Chodesh Elo to, to Yom Kippur, that's 40 days. Essentially, the, the Omer is, you know, once- If we, we skip the first 10 days, we have 40 days. <laughs> okay, so, so the Omer is after Passover to Shavuot, it's really 40. Yeah, that's oh, about 40. Yeah. 40 days, okay? So we have 40 days is, you know, the amount of time that it takes to, I don't know, make a transformation in your life. Yeah, but, Noah, obviously. Um, and in the Christian scriptures, Jesus has 40 days in the wilderness. Yes. Um, I, I think, Barry, your observation about, um, about you know, having to deal with a permanent, uh, wanting a permanent representation, representation as opposed to the mortal representation of Moses makes me think about the very, very end of the Torah, which is that Moses um, is, is buried in the valley. And to this very day, the Torah says, um, look, looking ahead in history, uh, nobody knows where he is buried. So at the very, very end of the Torah, at the edge of entering Eretz Yisrael, the people lose Moses and never will get to visit his grave. And to me, that is a very strong literary and spiritual message. You're going to have to do this without Moses. And so the first case where Moshe is absent, they freak. Maybe the rest of the Torah from here until the end is in some sense about building our capacity to make this journey without the singular presence of, of this leader. And that so, I think is a great human, um, it's a great human capacity because all of our leaders will sooner or later have to leave us. But in the infancy of, of Am Yisrael, like, it is inconceivable that they will not have Moses. It's a very sharp observation. And when we think of B'nai Yisrael entering the land, they're going to do so with Yehoshua, who was described as a Mishare Moshe, the servant of Moses. What, when we look at Aaron in this, in this puzzling episode, you know, when the people say Moses is gone, Aaron doesn't say, well, I can speak to God too. And you wonder why he doesn't say that. You know, Aaron seems to abdicate his responsibility. He doesn't seem to act as a leader here. He acts as one of the people, I guess the first Achar Ha'am. And it's, it's troubling because you would think, you know, elsewhere in the Torah, um, when we get to Vayikra, this will come up again, where it says, There's a machloket among the rabbis. Does God speak to both Moses and Aaron simultaneously? Or does he speak to Moses and Moses then says to Aaron, which in the crypt version of the Torah just becomes El Moshevi'el Aaron. And you want something more, I think, from Aaron here. I think saving grace seems to one last point. Sorry. His only saving grace here seems to be that he goes unpunished for his behavior. So let's defend Aaron a little bit, please. Okay. You disagree that he goes unpunished? I I disagree that he goes unpunished. But anyway, Elliot's defending him and then I'll prosecute him. You know, so so let's let's understand Aaron within the rabbinic tradition. I'm going to use that card here. 
okay, that, that Aaron is, is the person he's, he, he knows people, he's not the same kind of person that most of the people love Aaron, and Aaron has, Aaron has a real sense of what they need. And Aaron is in the, in the really tight spot here. He knows that Moshe has to come back. He doesn't have a cell phone to call him up on the mountain. He is stalling for time. He, he implored, like Jeremy, like you said, he, he says, okay, you want something? Give me, give me something that's valuable to you. And, and what, he, what surprises him is how rapid they are able to you know, rip off their, their, their earrings and their jewelry. And then he stalls for time some more. He makes the, the golden calf. And then he says, okay, tomorrow he builds the, uh, an altar. Okay, tomorrow there'll be a, a festival. Okay, So why doesn't he wait till the next day to build the altar? Again, I, I think he's, he's saying, come on, Moses, come on, Moses, come on down, come on down, I come on. No, but he has a golden calf. That should be enough for the people for one day. And then the next day. But I think he's participating here. He's so, not just stalling. He knows this people, and he knows what, you know, he's, he's compromising. And that, that's his big, that's his stalling, and that's his downfall in some ways. I don't know. I would say that I, I, I think the Torah gives us a fairly negative view of Aaron. Um, one, one little element about this is that, you know, when Aaron, when Moses comes back down and says, you know, <laughs> what just happened here? And Aaron, Aaron gives, this, gives the lamest excuse in the history of lame excuses. I threw all the gold in the, in the pot and out popped the calf. Um, <laughs> the damnedest thing, right? Um, the... In in Tractate Megillah, you know, our our listeners know that the uh, ancient Torah reading was uh, verse by verse Hebrew and Aramaic. Hebrew and Aramaic, the people didn't, you know, they those languages are close but not identical. And there was an Aramaic translation, so the people could know, understand what was exactly going on, verse by verse. And um, and one of the passages that is deemed so scandalous that you shouldn't translate it is Aaron's <laughs> Aaron's lame explanation because he he fails to take responsibility he likes you know he says well the, the cap just popped out no 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 you cannot lie about your own guilt you have to fess up and he certainly does not but the other thing that i would say and this is this is the part that i um shook my head about not punished uh, i think that the hitting the rock episode is you know later on in bamidbar Hitting the rock episode, I think, is um, a uh, this is much between the lines. It it makes no sense that that Moshe is um, is is barred from from the land of Israel because he hit the rock, and Aaron does nothing at all in the episode. But but the, the Torah says that because of this, you and Aaron cannot enter the land. I think that there's a little sly thing going on. That Moshe can't enter the land because of the breaking of the tablets here, aligned with the breaking with the smashing of the rock, and Aaron can't because of because of uh, of the golden calf, and Aaron may also be punished with the death of Nadav and Avihu. And just by the way, this is the, to me this is the cherry on top. Yeravam ben Navat who makes golden calves in the book of 1 Kings, he has two children who die named Nadav and Aviyah. 
Okay, so like the children of the guy who makes the golden calf die in that episode, I would say that as, as is part of our Parsha, that God punishes children for the sins of the parents may also be related here. That you, Aaron's you're punishment. making reference to the later appearance of the, of the golden calf in the northern tribes. And, and, yes. and some scholars read this as a polemic against the, the idolatrous actions of the northern tribes. But but we we've but got, I want to, you know, Jeremy, yeah. your comment about the Moses at the rock is fascinating because then you know he in the version in Bimidbar, he hits the rock twice. And what you're suggesting, I think, is that that is his symbolic breaking of the tablets. That's and that would be yeah. all right. So let's I mean we have gone through Aaron, but can we can we give a little insight into Moses? What 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 must be going through his mind here? We 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 jumped ahead of ourselves, but Moses is coming close to the camp. He sees the dancing. He sees the calf. He gets angry. He casts the tablets from his hands. Okay, Moses, what's going I on? I went away for a little while and look away and you destroyed the house. This is why we can't have nice things. <laughs> <laughs> what, what about the Midrash? Okay, I'm going to play the Midrash card again. That the, 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 the You're playing too much. The, the tablets become too heavy for him because the, 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 the script on the tablets are lifted up by the, these, the, the wings and the, the, the letters fly off the tablets. The tablets become too heavy and he drops them simply. He drops them. Even for the rabbis, that's fanciful. So no, that's great. That's awesome. It, 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 of course it's fanciful. It's an awesome fanciful midrash that that when the people were with the Torah, the Torah was itself spiritual, lifted them up. And when the people's engagement with the Torah, like this, I, I think that a modern heterodox Jew like ourselves would, would love this, that, you know, the Torah in and of itself um, can't carry the people. It is the people with the Torah that give it its spirituality. Oh, and if tragic nature of this this situation okay the, the, so i want to go in with the stones that are written on i want to go in a different direction there's oh, this yeah. great article by shindalit goitain about the prophet jonah and his point there is that jonah the book the story of jonah is a story about the prophetic dilemma the prophet is caught between god and the people and he cannot win and Moses, we sometimes forget, is the paradigmatic prophet. And he too is caught between God and the people, and he too cannot win. So he's up with God, fulfilling half of his responsibility, and the people are misbehaving. When he goes back to the people, God disappears. And he's always caught in between. And I think it gives the, the pathos to the scene that's coming up where he wants to see God, and God says, you can't. Okay, so so we have Rachmanis for Aaron here. At least I do. You do. <laughs> we have Rachmanis for Moshe, who is really caught in this. In this. What about God? You have Rachmanis for God? you have any feeling? What, what is God going through here in this? Yes, I, I think I think that the one has to have Rachmanis for God because the story of I mean now I'm not really speaking like out of a text in the in the Torah, but I think my own religious orientation is um, 
the incom about the incommensurateness between the infinite, immortal, infinite wisdom of the divine and the Fine. world that can't handle it, yeah. and and the divine having to accommodate itself to a um, a limited world and find like the divine is like an artist who has to find the right materials for this this infinitely precious creation and that's not so doable um so i have this uh feeling like the, the the divine reaction is this is going so well oh and you broke it you broke it so quickly i think that's as, as elliot said the tragic dimension um, i think the divine is is like very much um, a, a tragic character here too. I gave you, I gave you these tablets, which, by the way, you know, in um, in uh, midrashic tradition, you know, maybe, maybe you, you're the, our listeners are thinking about like a hunka, a limestone in the desert. In midrashic tradition, they're sapphire. They're like radiant. They're in, they're gemstones. God has given Moshe something that the world cannot handle. And it's just too, it's too deep, it's too radiant, it's too beautiful. And it's brokenness, I think, that God becomes, uh, if, you know, kapiachol, if you can even say such a thing, the tragic figure. So I think that we can only have Rachmanus for God if we operate out of the premise that God needs people. If God is so transcendent that he's totally beyond us, then we can't have Rachmanus. It's his world, and he's responsible. But it's only because God needs us that we feel bad when we collectively human beings let God down because that's not part of God's bargain. That's not what he wants from us. It's not what he expects from us, but that's how we behave. So there, there's so many vectors of this story that are converging in this moment with the people and their idolatrous impulse and with Moses and, and his leadership and Aaron and his you know, role here. The, the questionable role that he plays, and God, God has a moment of transition. Also, uh, does this is this reflected in the next scene where Moses wants to see God? Moses wants God to be Hareini Nakvodecha. I want you to show me your presence, and something has to change here. Something has to change in in the relationship. I, could, can you take us through that that scene where where Moses says, you know, Hareini Nakvodecha, show me your your presence? And what does God do? What does God say to him? Barry hit it. Barry. He says, man cannot see me and live. Which means, of course, that God, man may see God, and the penalty is death. And then we have this curious scene where God says, I will put you in the cleft of the rock. And rocks are conveniently cloven for scenes just like this. And I will pass by, and you will see my back. And it is such an arresting image because most of us in our post-medieval world are used to imagining God as being invisible, and now he has a back. And that, so you, it, it's hard to imagine what one actually sees a back of an invisible God. But the other thing I would draw to our attention is that it's the expression when my, man may not see God and live is alpanai. But earlier in the Parsha, Moses is described as speaking panim alpanim with God. Yeah. Moses, who cannot see God's face, is yet described as being face to face with God. 
And there is a, a paradox here. Um, and Martin Buber, one of my favorite Bible commentators, said all great religion is founded in paradox. And this is one of those that belongs to our religion, that we have a face and a back that can't be seen. So, and then the content of what happens in the exchange between God and Moshe is also a paradox. Because, and we quote this verse constantly in in Yom Kippur and in other services. Adonai, Adonai, Rachum Chanun, God, God, you are merciful, gracious, Erachapayim, Barav Chesed Ve'Amet, with with compassion, Noser Chesed La'Alafim. Applying your your love to the thousand. You transfer the iniquity of the parents to children, etc. There is a paradox in that, and yet that becomes the the dominant theme of, of forgiveness. And here we have God as the forgiving God. But it's also a theme of joy because we recite it on the Shlosh Regalim when we take the Torah. Indeed, indeed. Isn't it amazing? I, I think that one of the most, like, you know, when, when we think about, like, what's rabbinic Judaism all about? To me, putting the period after vinake, like, the, the, vinake lo yinake, the simple translation means by no means cleanse. The, the double Hebrew verb, um, both before and after lo, nake lo yinake means God will by no means cleanse. But in rabbinic Judaism, we just put a period Right. In the middle and of a sentence that, that changes the meaning 180 degrees and the, the flexibility, not, not the, the rabbis are not modern people such that they say, hey, guys, let's change the meaning. It's that they find such inexhaustible, like wellsprings of me meaning that there is a way of reading um, the, the shot of the verse, the semantic meaning of the verse to mean the exact opposite. It's all, it's the possibility of, of discovering meaning is just like, it's so fabulous. So this, comes a, this verse comes after Moses makes a second set of tablets. And, and we don't have time to really make the comparison between the first set and the second set, other than to say that Moses does it himself. And that in coming down the second time, there's just, there's, it's not the same. It's just, it's a quieter thing. But there, there's... It looks but like he comes on the second time with the burden of having taken the tablets up as well. Yeah. And the weight of the tablets on the way down the second time is simply not the same weight as it was when he came down and broke them. He's much more vested in these. And that says something profound about how we locate God in the world, because what was made by God with God's finger cannot exist in our world. And yet Moses is able to bear this double burden of the second set of the tablets. And, and he is transfigured. He, the, the, his face literally, is glowing, yeah. literally glowing. It's like he, he's radioactive here. I yes. mean, it, 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 it's really that literal. Moshe lo yada kikaran or his face, he doesn't even know that he's beaming at, at a thousand watts here. He has to wear a veil. Uh, what, what, is the, what does that mean? What is the significance of, of being veiled from the people? And, and Well, you have it. You, you have at that one. I have at that one. <laughs> I, I, didn't, I haven't thought about it through as much as, as I, th I think it means that, that 
you're just you have too much power. You you and it's you you're conveying too much fear. The people need to stand back from you. There's and I I, I my inkling on this is that when something happens to your face, the whole essence of your being has changed. And and that's what's what Moses has experienced here. There's something remarkably transformative in this whole parsha on all levels here. Well, he's been touched by God, and he no longer can be completely part of our world again. I think it's part of it. He has to, he has to behave differently. But the other thing that is related to this is that the Ohel Moed is going to be moved outside of the camp. Because uh, on one hand, we have the concession of an Ohel Moed where God can meet with Moshe, and Moshe can then dispense God's word. But on the other hand, that can no longer be in the center of the people. That, you know, uh, there's this great tension between the forgivability of sin. We want all sin to be forgiven, but it can't be. And sometimes you have to make a concession to the sin, but then change the dynamic that's going to come forth afterwards because you can't go back to the status quo ante. You know, uh, to take a, um, uh, this, is a this is an insane example, okay? But um, but maybe not so insane because because it is a uh, it's a uh, uh, one of the one of the ways that the Bible speaks about idolatry is of adultery. Like the Jewish people are in a covenantal and exclusive relationship with Hashem. And to turn to another god is a kind of adultery, and that's a that's a stock metaphor for the prophets. Well, there, there was a book that came out a few years ago by the Jewish um, psychotherapist named Esther Perel. She writes these books about, yeah. you know, marriage, and and she had this book about affairs. And she said in this book that you know she's working with couples that that the uh, aff- the affair is not necessarily the end of your marriage, but it is the end of your first marriage, and it may now begin your second marriage. And the um, the I think what Barry points to is there are certain sins, certain injuries that you can't just pretend don't happen and go on as if they didn't happen, but they can in their own, even if painful ways, betoken a new beginning. And I would say that that this the, the breaking of the the luchot and the building of the golden calf may be something like that. That there's it's just, it's devastating. It is awful. It is a huge spiritual and religious failure by the Am, by Aaron, and in its own way produces the possibility of a renewal that is going to build a different relationship, but but one that may uh, actually be more enduring. I don't know. Well, it's not just a renewal. It's also redemption as well. And so the Oha Moe is going to be moved but God is not going to abandon the Jewish people. And I think that is an important thing for us to keep in mind that, you know, in our understanding of God's work in the world, God does not abandon us. And even though we may stray like the sheep from the flock, God will eventually come back to us. So we're, we're running out of time. We're probably out of time, but we, we have the, the relationship continues in another aspect of the Shabbat, which is Shabbat Parah, this is the Shabbat of the, the Red Hammer, which is also about re-consecration, re-purification. Uh, Shabbat Parah is placed in the calendar, the reading of the special portion 
from Bamidbar re relating to the, the red heifer prior to Passover to, to, to remind us that the period that we're entering in here is, is a period actually of re-consecration, re-establishing re, uh, that relationship or entering into the renewal of your, uh, your covenantal life. Uh, the, the burning of the red heifer and sprinkling of the water and purification, which is not exactly how we wanted to end this part of this partial podcast, but we have the purification to, part, the purification, purification. part. But uh, there, there's just so much to think about in this Parsha. We know that uh, we've barely scratched the surface, but we want to thank you for watching and for listening and for being with us. We're, we're, we're almost at the one-year anniversary of our Parsha, pod, Parsha Talks, and we look forward to having that one-year anniversary, I think, next week with Vayaka Pune. In the meantime, Shamru Shabbat. Keep Shabbat, enjoy Shabbat, study, and we'll see you next week on Parshatana.